Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Last week we made it halfway through chapter 11. We'll have to do a little review tonight in order to hit the new material running. I warned you when we began studying the book of Isaiah that along the way you were going to get plenty of Israelology. Tonight you're going to get a lot of Israelology. The theme of chapter 11, and really starting from the middle of chapter 10, the theme is that God is going to be faithful to Israel, specifically to a remnant that he is going to restore, that he is going to call back to himself, that he is going to give the land to, that he has scattered and that he is going to regather. And you're going to see that theme developing now. We've been treating it week by week, but tonight hopefully you can see it in the big overview as we look from the middle of chapter 10 all the way into chapter 12. And you're going to see how consistent this lesson is because it's not only said here in Isaiah, but it's also something that we're going to look at in Zechariah. It's something that Jesus himself picks up in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 quotes it as well. And it's part of Paul's Israelology when Paul in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, as he talks about his remnant theology, asking the question, has God abandoned those people that he foreknew? His answer is, God forbid, and his evidence is himself. So as Paul is developing his remnant theology in the book of Romans, he makes several references back to Isaiah because it is Isaiah who first develops this concept of a remnant within Israel. For instance, in chapter 10, starting at verse 20, now it will come about in that day, you're going to see that phrase a lot, in that day, Isaiah is always looking forward to that day of restoration for Israel. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So there's the prediction that even though they are going to be scattered, even though God is going to drive them out of the land that he has promised them in perpetuity, God is nevertheless going to restore them and a remnant of Israel and a remnant from the house of Jacob, which means northern tribes and southern tribes, are going to be regathered at some point, and God is going to restore them because he is, by definition, by name, the Holy One of Israel. He is still Israel's God. So as we're looking at this remnant theology tonight, and as we're seeing this promise of restoration yet again, you may be asking, well, that's, that's nice, Jim. That's good Old Testament stuff. But what does that mean to me? How does that encourage me? And I hope that what you get from tonight is the recognition that God is very, very faithful to his people with whom he has entered into covenant agreement and covenant promise, and he never, ever breaks that covenant. He never, ever breaks that agreement. And if, in fact, you can find all this language in the Old Testament about God's faithfulness to national Israel, but then God decides, I'm done with Israel, never mind, then you can't really have any confidence that that same God says to you, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to save you, I'm, I'm going to put you in my son and my spirit in you. How do you have any confidence that he's not then going to change his mind? Because you would see that he already has a history of changing his mind. That would make him a capricious God rather than a consistent God. 
and it would make him a god that you couldn't really trust long term because he has this history of saying, I'm going to save you, never mind. And on what basis could God change his mind? People claim that the reason that God changed his mind about Israel and that the reason that he abandoned Israel, despite what Paul says, no, he has not abandoned those people whom he foreknew. Paul makes that very clear. God forbid that wouldn't do. And of course, his evidence is himself. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God is saving me. So obviously God is still being faithful to his people. And so how can you apply it to yourself tonight? I hope you recognize that based on the Davidic covenant, based on the Abrahamic covenant, and based on the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 that is made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah that is repeated in Hebrews 8 and still with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that is the guaranteed promise that God is going to do everything he said he's going to do for Israel. And the reason you can have confidence is because that same new covenant includes Jesus saying to you that he's going to save you as a result of his finished sacrifice and his blood spilled. So you are in covenant promise with God But the Israelites are also in covenant promise with God. And if God can break that covenant, you have no confidence that he won't break the covenant you're under. So the more that you see the consistency of God where Israel is concerned, the more you ought to have confidence in God where you're concerned. So that's why we take the time to look into these things and understand them. Now, on Sunday, I said that we are living in this very interesting time between what God has done and what God is going to do. And the reason that we are encouraged in our faith in what God is going to do is because we can look at the things God has already done. Tonight, we're going to see God himself make that argument and say, look at what I have done for Israel I delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I brought them to this land. And based on what I've already done for them, here's what I'm going to do for them. So when God himself makes reference to his own history in order to demonstrate the faithfulness of the promises for the future, well, then that's a pretty rock-solid promise. But then what is it that he's going to promise Israel in this very rock-solid way? He's going to promise them that he's going to regather them, that he's going to restore them, that he's going to bring them back to the land. And that, peculiarly, is something that so much of the church world still struggles with, still has difficulty with. And yet, as I said, you can find Paul talking about it. You see Isaiah promising it. We're going to see Zechariah tonight promise it. And then we're going to see Jesus himself and Mark and Matthew say something that can only refer to this promise of restoration for national Israel. And yet the church world, by and large, ignores it. Because the church world, by and large, ignores so much of the Old Testament and forgets that the New Testament theology, New Testament promises, even our New Testament confidence is based on everything we know about God from the Old Testament. And so that's why we've done so much Old Testament study. All right, so let's dig in. We have already seen Isaiah 10 and the teaching of a remnant. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. They will return to the mighty God. And though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, a remnant within them will return. Okay, so there's a firm promise right there from God that a remnant of Israel is going to return to the mighty God. Well, when that happens, what is he going to do for them? Last week we saw that Isaiah predicted things in the immediate future, that God was going to deliver Israel from their enemies in Assyria that were going to come down and conquer the northern tribes, and we're going to get within two miles to the city of Nob, within two miles of Jerusalem, and yet God said, but he's not going to be able to take Jerusalem, and in fact, I'm going to turn him around and send him back where he came from. That actually happened. Historically, that actually took place. So that should give us confidence that the rest of what we're about to read is equally valid as what we already know God has done. 
Starting then at chapter 11, verse 1, I said again last week, after this promise that God is going to deliver Jerusalem from Assyria, which he actually does, the very next thing that Isaiah launches into is that a shoot will spring out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, and so Jesus is a descendant of David. He's of the Davidic lineage, and he is the culmination of the Davidic covenant. And so as Isaiah is creating this order, he starts with, okay, in the near future, here's what God's going to do. He's going to deliver you from Assyria. But then after that... Hence the word then. After that, he's going to bring about the Messiah. After that, as we continue through this chapter, after that we read all about the wolf laying down with the lamb and all that. We're going to read that tonight, but we saw it all last week. Okay, so here's the course of history. God says, I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. That happened. Then he says, Messiah is going to come to you. That happened. Then he says, wolves are going to lay down with lambs. Hasn't happened. So what are we going to say about that? Are we going to say, well, the first two were true. The first two are valid because they've actually happened. But that whole lamb-lion thing, that whole, he doesn't mean that especially if it includes a promise of Israel being restored to their land and becoming a national entity again. And if that's what you're saying, then that, that all has to be allegorized in some way where it cannot say what it actually says. We're going to have to explain it in some other way. Except that it's all part of the exact same prophecy in the exact same chapter of the Bible. And Isaiah does not take a break and say, okay, valid, and valid, and literal, and historic, actually happened, and this part, eh, not so much. <laughs> Instead, what he says is, all of this as a unit is the prophecy of God, proven by the fact that he already did this. When he let Assyria get all the way to Nob, and then an angel killed 185,000 people in one night, wiping out the army of Assyria and sending the king of Assyria back to Nineveh. It's exactly what was predicted, and it was exactly what happened. And God said, that's my evidence that I'm going to do the rest. And then Messiah came. And Messiah is the evidence that God is going to do the rest. And then you get to the New Testament and you read that all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes and amen. So not only are they validated, but they're completed. Amen. Verily, verily, it will be so. So the Bible is really, really, really consistent. It is just the theology of the church over the last 2,000 years that has muddied up the waters. And as you're going to see tonight, the language just couldn't be clearer. The language couldn't be more obvious. But people say, well, you know, Israel has gone into the Assyrian captivity, then they never really returned to their homeland, and that's been 3,000 years now, and it hasn't occurred, and so therefore, it's not going to occur. Come on, it's been 3,000 years. That's three days to God. But, you know, it's been 3,000 years. We have a hard time counting that high, and so we're, we're just going to say that can't happen. We're going to allegorize it away. We're going to get rid of it. But then again, it was 2,000 years ago that Jesus left the planet and said, I'll be back. Do we believe he's going to be back? Amen. We're convinced he's going to be back. Okay, so why are we so convinced he's going to be back? Because he said so. Okay, same argument. Why are we convinced that God is going to do all the restorative work for Israel? Because he said so. Exact same God, exact same series of promises based on the exact same events that have already occurred in time and history. So to a certain degree, you don't even have to take these promises on faith. You don't even have to say, well, I, I'm just believing this because I'm a godly person, so I'm going to rev up my faith to believe this. You're asked to believe it, according to God, on the basis of what he's already done. And if you just look at the evidence of what has already occurred then you're going to be driven to the inescapable conclusion that he's going to do the rest. You got the argument? Yep. 
Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1. Here's the promise of Christ to come. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to last week's MP3. Because we went through that in detail and demonstrated how Christ actually satisfied all those promises. But then Isaiah, without missing a beat, the same way that he, in chapter 10, describes God protecting Jerusalem from Assyria, and then he launches right to then a shoot is going to come out of Jesse. Then he goes straight to, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. No pause, no waiting, just these things are going to happen sequentially. These things are going to occur. The best example of how to read Old Testament prophecy that I have found is actually a very common example, and you've probably all heard it. Many of you could probably recite it, but it's accurate. If any of you have ever driven across America, as I've done a couple of times, when you see the Rocky Mountains coming up in the distance, it looks like one range of mountains. Right, Leon? It looks like one continuous range of mountains where you think, okay, well, I'm just going to go up one side, come down the other side, and then I'm out of the mountains. But that's what it looks like from a distance. The closer you get to it, the more you realize that some of those mountains are close to you, and some of them are quite far away from you, and that there are valleys and peaks in between the close ones and the distant ones, and that you can go over the close ones, and then you come down into the valley, and there's more to go over. And after your ears are done popping from the lack of oxygen as you get to the top of some of those peaks, and after the headache disappears, and you've come down the other side, and there's actually air to breathe, you then dread the fact that you have to go up the next one. Because from a distance, it looks like one range. But the closer you get to it, the more you realize that it's several different layers of ranges. Same deal with Old Testament prophecy. As you're looking at it, the way Isaiah saw it, he saw it as one continuous prophecy. He's going to take care of Assyria, and then Messiah is going to come, and then the wolf and the lamb are going to happen, and then restoration for Israel and a glorious future. That's all one prophecy in Isaiah's mind. But we know, because we're living in the course of history, we know the difference between the things that have actually happened and the things that are going to happen. And at the moment, we're living in one of those valleys. But there's more peaks to come. Does that example help? Okay. So now suddenly at verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard's going to lay down with a kid, with a baby goat, the calf with the young lion, and the fatling will lay down together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lay down together. We've yet to see bears grazing. Typically, lions do not eat straw, which we're about to read, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. That hasn't occurred yet. That doesn't exist yet. Lions are still carnivores. That's a fact. I have three cats who think they're lions. Still carnivores, okay? And the nursing child will play by the hole of the poisonous snake, the asp, the cobra, it says here in the NASB. And the weaned child will put his hand into a viper's den. What's the point of all that? Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Has that happened yet? We got to say no. 
But has the Christ part at the beginning of the chapter happened yet? Yes. Yes. Well, then how valid is the rest of the chapter? It still has to happen based on the fact that the first part of the prophecy has happened. And Isaiah, not seeing a distinction or difference between them, launches right into, and then this has to happen. There's going to be physical, obvious things like lambs and lions laying down together and bears deciding to eat grass instead of eating other tiny creatures. And then a nursing child being able to play on the hole of poisonous snakes. And nobody's afraid about it because nothing's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. And the knowledge of the Lord is going to be like the waters. It's going to cover the whole earth the way the seas cover the earth. The knowledge of God is going to cover the earth. We would have to say, especially based on what we see politically in the world right now, all the upheaval, the rioting, everything else, we'd have to say, that hasn't happened yet. The knowledge of the Lord still seems to be distant to a lot of people. But this promise is that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 10, then, there's that word again. So Isaiah's building a sequence. This happens. I'm going to deliver you from Assyria. Okay, that happened. Then this stem of Jesse's going to come. Okay, that happened. Then lambs and lions laying down. Hasn't happened yet. So he makes reference to it in that day. When that happens, then it will come about in that day that the nations, that's the word goy in the Hebrew language, that's a reference to Gentiles, non-Jews. Then it will come about in that day that the non-Jews will resort to Jesus, the root of Jesse. Has that happened yet? Can we say that the Goyim, the nations of Goyims, recognize Christ as the ultimate ruler on the planet? We'd have to say no. Men are still busy trying to self-govern. Men are still busy setting up various different forms of self-governance on the planet. They're not resorting to the absolute rule of Christ yet. And yet the promise here is that the nations of Gentiles will Turn to, the NASB says resort. There's a couple of different ways to translate it. What it means is they're going to seek out. They're going to listen to. They're going to get their advice from the stem, the root of Jesse. Who will stand as a ensign, as a signal for the peoples, all those nations? And his resting place will be glorious. Has that happened? No, but I'm looking forward to the glorious resting place. I'm looking forward. Okay, so Jesus walks on the planet, and he says to his disciples, uh, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Start with that. Hallowed be thy name. What's the very first thing he says to ask? Thy Thy kingdom come as a result. Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus picks up this same idea and says, when you go to pray to God, pray to God that he does the very thing he's promised to do. He's promised this glorious future where his knowledge is going to cover the world the same way that the seas cover the world. And so when you go to God and you pray, before you get to forgive us or feed us, or forgive us our trespass. Before you get to any of that, you pray that God is going to do exactly what he already said he's going to do. You start with your kingdom come, and it's defined by your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you see the consistency of this? Mm -hmm. Jesus himself gives it validity and casts it out into the future, which is why you're to pray that it does come. And, of course, he said that to his Israelite disciples, the same ones who asked him before he sailed up into the blue, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Why would they ask that question? Because he's the one who told them, keep praying about the kingdom. Keep praying, thy kingdom come. They say, okay, now? Is it going to be now? And he says, not yet. It's not up to you to know. But meanwhile, you do what I'm sending you to do. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now go be my witnesses among all the peoples of the earth. 
So there is a tremendous biblical consistency to this teaching of God's faithfulness to Israel. And if you remove that teaching of God's faithfulness to Israel, I believe you undermine the faithfulness of God himself to all the people that he's ever been in covenant with. And you can't trust a God who turns his back on his promises. Okay, that's technically all introduction. We're finally to the new stuff, and we're going to have to move relatively quickly because I promised Bobby we'd get him out of here before 10. And so we've got to move. So. Then it will happen, says verse 11. There's that same language again. He's building a sequence. Then it will happen on that day. So this is very specific. In this sequence event of events, starting with the deliverance from Assyria, and all the events that have followed behind that, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his own hand the remnant of his people who will remain. That's why we had to start tonight with the remnant theology. Because the promise here is after the lamb and lion stuff, after the knowledge of God is sweeping over the Gentile nations and covering the earth, God himself with his own hand is going to restore the remnant of Israel and he's going to recover them. The language is so specific. A second time. When's the first time? When was the first time that he redeemed Israel? When was the first time that he restored his people? Well, that's when he took them out of Egypt. You don't have to guess that. God's about to say it. God's about to tell you what the first time is because he wants you to look back at what he did the first time so that he can guarantee he's going to do it the second time. And if you understand, if you believe, if you comprehend what everything in the Old Testament says about that very pivotal event of God delivering Israel out of Egypt and away from Pharaoh and then drowning all their enemies and bringing them to the promised land, that's the basis on which God expects you to believe that he's going to do it again. How firm is that promise? God is basing it on God's own history. He's like, look, I did it once. I'm going to do it again. Watch me. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. The significance of those cities, that is not just a random list of cities, The significance of it is Assyria, you're talking about eastward. Several of these cities are eastward from Jerusalem. But by the time you get to Cush, you're talking about Africa now. You're talking about to the south of Egypt. When you get to the islands of the seas, those are probably a reference out to the British Isles. They go all the way to the west, even if it's the Isle of Crete. It's still to the west, and Pathros is to the north. In other words, he just said... I'm going to gather the remnant of my people from the north, the south, the east, the west. No matter where they are on the planet, which direction of the compass I have driven them, I'm going to go get them with my own hand. Verse 12, and he will lift up a standard for the nations. That is an ensign, a signal, a designation for the nations. And he will assemble... Look how specific this is. The banished ones of Israel. What people group is he talking about? Israel. Israel. It's unavoidable. You can't say, he's talking about the church. You can't say, oh, he's talking about gathering some group of Gentiles who are going to later have faith in Christ. That's who he's gathering. God is very specific with his own language. He will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's why I pointed out that the various different cities that he named were in fact from the north, the south, the east, the west. He's saying no matter where they are, I'm going to go find them. Keep your finger right there in Isaiah so that I can demonstrate to you that this is not just a promise that is hidden away in Isaiah. It's actually a promise that is consistent through all the prophets of Israel. We're going to look specifically tonight at Zechariah. So turn to Zechariah 2, 
and we will read this same promise. Zechariah, among the minor prophets in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 2, we're going to start reading at verse 6, and then we'll read through verse 13. In the NASB, it says, ho there, which means pay attention. It's the same thing as hi there, ho there, hey there. It's, it's pay attention. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. So first, God takes credit for the fact that he dispersed Israel. He's responsible for the fact that they are scattered all over the planet. And since he's the one that scattered them, he's going to say, and I'm the one that's going to return you. I am the one who will restore you. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, which is, pay attention, Zion, listen up. By the way, he's referencing Zion here. What people group would that be? Israel. That's the only people group it can be. Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Okay, those are the ones to the east. So now those of you who are scattered to the east, those of you who are scattered to the north, pay attention, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory... He has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, Zion, touches the apple of God's eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for your slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations, the Goyim, will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and he will again choose Jerusalem. So be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. In other words, you don't get an opinion. God has already declared what it is he's going to do. He is going to choose Jerusalem again. So much so, that the final celestial city that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation is known as New Jerusalem because God has declared that he's going to renew Jerusalem. He's going to place his name there yet again. His worship is going to be there yet again. And here he has promised that he's going to regather Israel again back to Zion, back to Jerusalem. Okay, now he used very specific language here. He said, I'm going to gather you from the four winds where I have scattered you. Turn to the book of Mark for a second. Turn to Mark 13. When Jesus was walking and talking among the Jews, among Israel, before he had been to the cross, there were no Gentiles that were introduced into the church yet. There was no church yet. He hadn't died yet and established the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. None of that had occurred yet. And so to the people he was speaking to, the only elect they would know was the fact that Isaiah and several other places in the Old Testament, but we're talking about Isaiah tonight, he has already referred to Israel as Israel my elect. Jacob, my chosen. So it's already a very specific designation that is given to Israel that they are the elect. You got that? So what does Jesus mean when he says this? Mark 13, 27. He's talking about what's to come in the last days. Well, we'll start at 24. But in those days, does that sound familiar, by the way? That's that prophetic language of in that day, when that day comes. But in those days, after the tribulation, okay, now we know when we're talking about, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. When he went up into the clouds, the angel standing there speaking to the men of Galilee said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you just saw him leave. What was that manner? He was enveloped by clouds and taken away. He returns coming in clouds. Of course he would. And he himself declared it because he himself knows he's about to depart in clouds. So of course he would come back in clouds. He is coming back in clouds with great power and great glory. So now do you have some sense of the time frame? It's after the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time that is unlike anything that ever was or ever will be again. After that, there's going to be celestial disturbances. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give light. The stars are going to fall from the heavens. The powers that are in the heavens are going to be shaken. And then you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man, and he's going to be coming in clouds with great power and great glory. And then he will send forth his angels, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest ends of the earth, and from the farthest ends of heaven. What's he talking about? Based on everything we already know, he's talking about the regathering of Israel because they're the only elect that have been demonstrated to that point. The only revealed elect in the Bible is Israel, and God has already said in Zechariah, I'm going to scatter you to the four winds. And Jesus says, when I come back, I'm going to send my angels, and they're going to gather you from the four winds. Who's he going to gather? The elect. Who's that? Israel. It's the same promise. It was prophesied by Isaiah. It was prophesied by Zechariah. Jesus says it's going to happen. The authority is unquestionable. It's definitely going to occur. By the way, if you want to see it again, you can turn to Matthew 24, 31. You can go read that in your own spare time. I need to wrap up for the night. But in Matthew 24, 31, which is the parallel of this passage, you see Jesus use the exact same words. Matthew records it. Mark records it. It's that instrumental to what Jesus said about what's going to happen in the last days. Part of what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to send his angels to collect his elect from the four winds of heaven where Zechariah says God specifically scattered them, where God himself said, I'm going to regather them, which is exactly what Isaiah says. This is biblical. You get it? So again, I have to say, I don't know why so much of the church world ignores the fact that it's there, but it's not hidden away in some little unknown book. It's thematic to the faithfulness of God and to what God is going to do for his covenant people. Go back to Isaiah. we got to keep reading to get done tonight because I'm still hoping to get through chapter 12, which is a short verse. So I'm going to say 930 because I feel good. Anyway. Okay, we're back in Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 13. After he has gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, Verse 13 says, then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. That's the northern tribes. And those who harass Judah will be cut off. That's the southern tribes. As Isaiah is saying this, the northern tribes have made a deal with the Arameans to go attack Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah has gone to Assyria and given them the wealth of their temple in order to buy favor from the king of Assyria so that he will come and protect them from the onslaught of the Arameans and the northern tribes. Okay, so how much are Israel and Judah against each other? They're hiring other Gentile nations to help them fight against each other. That's how much enmity there is between them. And God says when he regathers them that the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So that's all part and parcel of that whole lamb and lion thing. That nothing's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. It's not just going to be the character of animals that's going to be changed. He's going to change the character of men from the inside out. The same way that he changed your character from the inside out, 
the same way that he put his Holy Spirit in you and that is demonstrated by the outward man and the way that the outward man behaves himself because the internal change has happened the same God who has the ability to do it and proved it in you is the same God who says that's what I'm gonna do for Israel I'm gonna change them inwardly to the point where they no longer have anger and jealousy against each other so there's no more enmity between them and they verse 14 are then going to swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west and together they will plunder the sons of the east and they will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them that all sounds like the nations of the Goyim finally receiving their correction and their blessing and their governmental system from Jerusalem exactly like the prophets have all prophesied 15 verse 15 and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt he's going to change the topography of the Middle East and he will wave his hand over the river that's the river Euphrates and with his scorching wind he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod why does that sound so familiar because the same God who said remember what I did in Egypt Remember when I brought them out of Egypt and I took them through the Red Sea dry shod? I'm going to do it again. This time I'm going to do it with the Euphrates River and with the Nile River. And I'm going to make it dry shod land so that my remnant can return back to the land that I have promised them in perpetuity. God's going to change geography and topography. That's how faithful he is to his people. Don't you think he's going to work for you? Don't you think this is a God who can solve your electric bill? This is a God who you can trust no matter what happens because he's perfectly willing to change kings and nations and topography and bring mountains low and dry up rivers just to prove his own faithfulness to his own word. And the whole time he keeps pointing backwards to, I already did it. Look at what I did. Now have faith that I'm going to do it again. Have confidence that I'm going to do it because look, I've done it. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's astounding, that God. So then, what's the result? The result is there's going to be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day when they came up out of the land of Egypt. I didn't just make up that example. God himself created the example because he wants you to look back at Egypt. He wants you to remember what he did to Egypt. And he wants his people Israel to remember what he did in Egypt so that they can believe that he is going to do it for them again and that Israel has this glorious future that he has promised for them. Chapter 12 is an outcry of thanksgiving that God says Israel then is going to say on that day. Read these words with me and put yourself in these shoes. Put yourself into these words of praise and thanksgiving because these are words to a glorious God. Isaiah chapter 12, then you will say to me on that day, when I've done all that, when I've returned you to your land, when I've changed topography just to do it for you, when I've created a highway out of Assyria for you, when I've done all that, this is what you're going to say to me. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with us, your anger is turned away. It's the same God who said, I will scatter you, but then I will restore you. They're going to recognize that history and say, you scattered us because you were angry with us. Far too much of the current church world theology says, yeah, God scattered them and then left them there. Paul says, God forbid. Instead, they're going to recognize you were angry with me and your anger is turned away and you do comfort me. That's going to be the prayer, the thanksgiving of Israel. By the way, that ought to be your prayer. That ought to be your word of thanksgiving. 
Because when you were still in your sin, before you were redeemed, before you were regenerated, you were nothing but darkness in darkness, and God was nothing but angry with you. But then he was kind to you. He was good to you, and he drew you, and he put his spirit in you, and you ought to be able to say, you were angry with me, but your anger is turned away, and now you do comfort me. Because he gave you the Holy Spirit, who Jesus himself called the comforter. That's the comfort that comes from God, promised all the way back here to Israel. You can't eliminate Israel from the equation without doing massive damage to the faithfulness of God to his covenant people. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will have faith and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's the one that lifts me up and he's the one that I want to extol. He's the one that I want to sing about. He's the one I want to tell about. And he has become my salvation. How reformed is that statement? That's everything we believe about salvation. Who does the saving? God. And it's always been God. It's always God who represents himself as the Savior. But significantly, when Christ came onto the planet, one of the names that he was given was the Redeemer of Israel. You can't take that name away from him because it has significance based on all the years of prophecy and promises that God has already made to Israel. The Redeemer of Israel is, in fact, your salvation. Therefore, you, speaking to the people of Israel, will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Jesus himself used that language. That out of you are going to come living springs. Where do you get that language? He was hearkening back to what the prophets had already said. That wasn't a brand new analogy he made up. It was something that the people of Israel were already familiar with. Here's the promise. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. And make them remember that his name is exalted. Make them remember. How do you make people remember? You just keep telling them. You keep reminding them. You keep preaching the wonderful word of God and the wonderful savior of God and the wonderful things that God has done historically that already prove all the things he has promised to do in the future. And you just keep saying it and saying it. Why? Because the word of God says to. To praise the Lord in song for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Okay, the same God who promised you that the righteousness and the knowledge of God was going to cover the earth like the waters of the sea cover the earth, that same God has promised that the knowledge of him is going to cover the earth. In fact, part of the new covenant is that no man is going to have to teach his neighbor and say, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. By the way, that promise was made to Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's who it's addressed to. Jeremiah 31, go read it. I'm not making this up. It starts with God saying to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. I love that phrase. I will apply that phrase to everyone that God loves. I will tell everybody, you love God because he first loved you. And his love is an everlasting love. And that's why he drew you. But it's not just true of you. It's true of Israel because he promised it first to Israel. And he promised the new covenant to Israel. And he said, in all of Israel, no one's going to have to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And in that day, they are going to extol the virtues of God. They are going to praise the Lord in song because he has done these excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. What people group is he talking to? Israel. See how obvious it is? I'm not making anything up here. I'm just reading what the words on the page say. And the pages and the words on the page say that God is going to restore and recover Israel. 
the children of Mount Zion, the inhabitants of Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem specifically, for great in the midst of you is the Holy One of Israel. That's about as Israelological a message as you're going to find. And it's right here in the Bible. And it can't be ignored, and you can't brush it under the carpet, and you can't do away with it, and you can't allegorize it in such an effective way that it actually means the church, because the church is never called the inhabitants of Zion. And we're never called Jerusalem. And even though there are people who will try to claim that we're the new or spiritual Israel, the Bible never says that, not once. It's just not in there. So don't let modern theological notions undermine your confidence in a God who can say what the future is and then by his almighty power deliver that future in time and history very genuinely and very literally because he is after all the sovereign of the universe who does whatever he pleases that's why he's sitting on his throne announcing what he's going to do and part of what he has announced he's going to do is restore Israel to their glorious future and based on the fact that he said the things he was going to do and then did them and then said the things he's going to do part of what he said he's going to do is save you and deliver you and take you to the glory that Christ himself has earned for you. That is a rock-solid promise that is as rock-solid as everything else we read tonight because it's all based on the unchanging nature of the God who says, look at what I've already done. Mm -hmm. Get it? You ought to walk out of here tonight praising that God. You ought to walk out of here thanking that God that he deigned to let you know anything about him because he's a magnificent God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Questions? It is pretty darn clear, isn't it? I mean, you just read it and it's all in there. All right then, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.